Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. What is this day two of the post-Mar-a-Lago raid meltdown? We have a lot of coverage about that in the Bulwark. But uh, I think that uh, today we are going to devote uh, to a perhaps somewhat wonky insider, inside, too much inside baseball analysis of my home state of Wisconsin. What happened here last night? the sort of uh, head-snapping face turn of the Republican Party towards MAGA, or maybe not, uh, over the last six years. And joining me on today's podcast to do all of this is a guy who has been watching Wisconsin politics for a very long time. I should ask you, uh, James, how long it's been. Uh, James Wigderson, who uh, took over for me as the editor of Right Wisconsin and now is the editor of his own new newsletter, which you ought to subscribe to, called Life Under Construction. James Wigderson, from, live from crucial Waukesha County, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining me this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on, Charlie. So I sat down this morning trying to figure out what to say about last night's primary in Wisconsin? Because, you know, once again, we have another Trump-backed candidate for governor that wins, and, you know, that fits into all these national narratives. But, you know, what struck me was how that illustrates how dramatically the Republican Party has changed in just six years, because you and I both remember back in the mists of time, uh, April of 2016, where Wisconsin Republicans... They did not buy what Donald Trump was selling. This was one of his worst and most embarrassing defeats. Wisconsin Republicans were about as anti-Trump as any party in the country. And then last night, what happens? The Trump-endorsed candidate for governor wins. Uh, Trump-endorsed obscure sort of batshit crazy fringe candidate comes within inches of ousting the sitting uh, assembly speaker. So this has been a transformation. And I was talking to uh, another re- Republican uh, this morning uh, who uh, was, you know, shaking, shaking his head about this. And, and he said, uh, you know, last night that everybody was texting one another, where did all the sane people go? And of course, as you know, what I said was, uh, welcome to my world. <laughs> if only you people had been warned. But right. so let's just talk about this. I mean, it's, I, you know, Tim Michaels is the nominee beat of Rebecca Clayfish. And Rebecca Clayfish, I mean, she was very, very well-known, worked very, very hard, had the backing of the full uh, establishment, and uh, Michaels beat her easily. So what happened, right. James? What happened? Yeah. So what happened is, is is that we're now seeing the transformation of the Republican Party in Wisconsin from the days of Paul Ryan to complete paranoia. Yeah, And we're seeing that Tim Michaels, every time that the question came up, just pressed further and further into mega territory. Uh, he went from saying, you know, maybe he'll support Trump to definitely he's going to support Trump in 2024 and anything he could do to hang on to that Trump endorsement, because that was what was important. And as a result, he managed to cut into Rebecca Clayfish's votes in the in the areas surrounding Milwaukee County the Republican-rich Wow counties, Waukesha, Osaki, and Washington County, and managed to keep her totals low there, even winning Washington County, and then uh, managed to just beat her outstate where that's where the beat her. Yeah. yeah, that's where the Trump vote is, and that and managed to uh, just crush her out there, and it's the transformation of the Republican Party that we're seeing. 
So as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, I mean, really, there's, you know, there were no substantive philosophical differences between the candidates. I mean, they both ran pretty hard to the right. Clayfish did her best to curry favor with the MAGA, with the MAGA base, but Michaels was willing to pander harder. He was willing to embrace the election lies with more enthusiasm. And that was all he needed. I mean, I, look, I, Rebecca Clayfish has some vulnerabilities as a candidate. There's just no question about it. I'm not saying that she was, you know, that she was going to cruise to this nomination, but um, Tim Michaels, you know, was, and I described him as an out of state, not ready for prime time, somewhat dim last minute entrance who has been politically absent from this state for a decade and a half since he lost a really lackluster Senate race back in 2004. And he spent a lot of the campaign dodging the media, skipping debates, and then sweating profusely when he showed up. He was not an impressive candidate, but he had the one thing that matters now. Doesn't. I mean, it, this that is the only factor, really, that separated him from Rebecca Clayfish that made him plausible is that Donald Trump said he's our guy and he had some money. Well, I mean, it was a campaign that was largely devoid of any sort of issues, really. I mean, you, you say that there wasn't much difference between them. You couldn't tell what their actual positions were because all it was is which one would be more loyal to Trump in, in two years and which one was willing to discuss the the election two years ago, which one was willing to overturn the 2020 election? And uh, how much are they committed to fighting vote fraud that they think that stole the election? And Michaels was willing to go that extra step. And and it's really a shame to see because this was the, the state that had generated Paul Ryan and Scott Walker and Act 10 and Paul Ryan you know, talking about entitlement reform. Mm -hmm. We were a state that was generating ideas for the Republican Party, and now we're just generating uh, heat without any light, no substance. It really was a substance-free campaign. Again, I know we're going to get kind of insider baseball here, but one of uh, Michael's appeals was that he, well, he was an outsider and he wasn't taking any lobbyist money and he was independent and all of this stuff. First of all, his campaign was run by three of the swampiest guys in Wisconsin. I mean, right now, you know, the, the people who have been bankrolled by the road builder lobby, who've been pushing for, you know, all, all of this. Tim Michaels is from a road building family. Uh, Reince Priebus obviously was playing a key role here for whatever reason, because he thinks that uh, he'll have a pipeline so that his law firm will be able to get contracts. Uh, you have a former congressman named John Gard, who works closely with the road builders, et cetera, uh, supporting him. Bill McCaution, again, a big time lobbyist. And yet you listen to people around the state going, yeah, this guy is, well, he's, he's like Trump. He has no ties. He is completely independent. He's going to drain the swamp. He's actually one of the most ridiculously swampy figures I've seen in some time. And, and, and yet he wins, he wins easily. So uh, again, the, 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 the rules of politics have changed. So one of the things for people who are still with us on this insider stuff, uh, Scott Walker, at least it looked like to me was going all in for, uh, his former Lieutenant governor, uh, Rebecca Clayfish. And until 2018, Scott Walker was the dominant Republican in the state of Wisconsin. We're now four years later. And it's like that faded pretty quickly, didn't it? Right. The Republican Party has left Scott Walker behind. He's yeah. now in the ash bin of history. I mean, what was interesting to me was how much of the campaign Scott Walker spent while he was campaigning for Rebecca, uh, reopening old, old wounds from the 2018 campaign 
and refighting some of those battles rather than talking about what Rebecca would do if she were elected yeah. governor. Yeah. And uh, he it was to me amazing to watch a former governor actually go on the offensive and make negative attacks yeah. on Tim Michaels during the campaign just to settle some old scores. Uh, I think if uh, the Clayfish campaign and and Scott Walker had focused more on a positive agenda and talked about things other than the the last two elections, they probably would have had a better chance of winning over some really? some voters. Okay, may, maybe you're right. I mean, in in a in a better world, I would like to think that that's that's right. But you look at this result and you go, it, it all just came down to who was willing to kiss Donald Trump's ring harder, and that's what Wisconsin voters wanted. I mean, right? I mean, it, it's there was really nothing else here. It was it was just she could have come up with all sorts of positive agendas and white papers and, you know, put together her, you know, shadow cabinet and everything. It wouldn't have made any difference because, you know, the orange God King came in here and he says, I want Michaels. Well, we'll never know because she didn't try. Yeah. I mean, I'm always more optimistic than yeah. you, Charlie, on these things. But uh, she didn't even try. She just, again, was trying to, you know, I was the lieutenant governor and you should vote for me. And was relitigating the past rather than talking about the future. Right. right. And we'll, we'll just never know. I mean, to, but like you said about Tim Michaels, I mean, people tried to sell him to me as he was a candidate that could beat Tony Evers, the current governor. He is going to be a winner. And I'm sitting there looking at him going, he's lost two elections already in Wisconsin. He lost a race for state Senate. He lost the Republican that. primary. Yeah. And he Lost the race for U.S. Senate. And he ran a terrible campaign. He ran against uh, Russ Feingold and just face-planted. It was completely forgettable. If if he wasn't running for office now, you wouldn't even remember that he ran then. So this is just a reminder of how fleeting fame can be and how ephemeral political uh, clout can be. Because uh, it, it it feels like very recently that again that you know Paul Ryan was was the was the rock star future of the party. Um, now he is you know completely not a factor in Wisconsin politics. Scott Walker, governor up until four years ago, now uh, obviously does not have the ability to you know push a candidate across the line. And, and I guess that also makes it striking about Tim Michaels because I don't know you you watch politics very very closely. I was trying to think whether I'd ever heard of Tim Michaels from 2004 until 2022. I mean, he he moved to Connecticut, built himself a multi-million dollar mansion, but I don't remember him playing any role in any of our politics for the last decade. And hey, he was he was he was absent, he was invisible, right? I mean, you know, and then he he parachutes back in and normally if you've been gone that long nobody remembers you. Except again, in a Trumpified party, if if Trump blesses you, that that's that's enough. I was listening to uh, Reince Priebus being interviewed this morning on a on a local talk show, and Reince Priebus was trying to sell the idea that Tim Michaels has always been active behind the scenes, and he was on the he was on President Trump's infrastructure committee and things like that. <laughs> I wouldn't brag about <laughs> that. Just, yeah, just kind of he drew up the plans okay. for infrastructure week. Yeah. yeah, so Which Reince never. Priebus, I mean, of, of all the guys who have been uh, sort of wiped away, Reince Priebus still is the guy that has found a way to monetize the grift here in Wisconsin. And and I don't know. I mean, he used to be kind of close with Scott Walker, but he's now decided what he's going to go. Uh, he's, he's all Trump all the time now, and he's going to recruit candidates uh, in, in states like Wisconsin. I mean, what's what is what's what's Reince's deal, do you think here? 
I mean, I'm looking at it from the outside when it comes to Reince Priebus, but having lost touch with him once he uh, went full Trump. But I would, I would say that it just from observing his behavior, I mean, this was a guy that was a couple of years ago was being talked about as a possible candidate for governor himself. And instead of running for governor, he recruited somebody else to run. And like you said, there seems to be a more of a backflow of money to the insiders that way, rather than being out front and being the candidate yourself. All right. So the most interesting election, uh, besides the governor's election, and I'm sure you are watching it as, as well, was what should have been a completely obscure primary for state assembly, where the longtime speaker of the state assembly, the most powerful Republican legislator, Robin Boss, was being challenged by another Trump-backed candidate, a guy who uh, nobody had ever heard of before, takes the most extreme positions in denying the election, says he would vote to ban contraception in Wisconsin. And he came within a few hundred votes of ousting Robin Voss, the sitting speaker of the assembly. This feels like an incredible morality tale, though, doesn't it? Well, you were watching this and thinking to yourself, Robin Voss is getting everything that he deserves. Yes, he was, I, he's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, Voss was, was sucking up to Trump, rode on the plane, would go down to Mar-a-Lago and explain, oh, no, I really am all about investigating the 2020 election and finding fraud. And and then he would come back to Wisconsin and then Trump would trash him again because he wasn't fighting hard enough to overturn the 2020 election. And the best part of all this was Boss thought he was being clever. He appointed a former state Supreme Court justice to investigate the 2020 election and Michael Gableman, the state mm-hmm. Supreme Court justice, turned out to be a complete conspiracy theory nut and it was it actually endorsed Voss's opponent in the primary because he didn't think he had enough support from Voss. Though, you know, Voss is paying him. This has all been reported. He's been yep. paying Gableman, keeping gobs of money with invoices that wouldn't pass muster in any purchasing department in any company in the, in America. <laughs> and Gableman's been destroying public records and all that, and Voss has refused to fire him. You'd think that Gableman would have had a few, little more gratitude. <laughs> no, they, they pissed away about a million dollars in taxpayer money. When I think, what are they paying him? $10,000, $11,000 a month, plus all of these expenses and everything. And and I, I've described Gableman as a supersized one-man clown car. I mean, it was a complete disaster. And yet, Voss continued to back him because he thought this would appease the MAGA base, and it it didn't. And you know, and I'm sorry if people think I'm overusing this, but I, I just I keep thinking this is he's the poster child for you know failed uh, Trump suck up. Uh, I mean, he thought he could grow the baby alligator in the bathtub and toss it occasional bits of red meat, and it wouldn't grow up crawl out and begin eating people. And, and Boss didn't think it would come for him, and it did. And so he came within an inch of being ousted because he told Donald Trump, he with all the sucking up, uh, Mr. Trump, I am sorry, but there is no legal mechanism to decertify the election in Wisconsin. It, that would be illegal. He was willing to do everything up until that point, kind of like Mike Pence. And he was like, hey, I can't do this. There's no way to overturn a presidential election. 
and Trump decided, I will kill you because you won't break the law on my behalf. Yeah, and the other interesting thing about the whole Voss debacle was he also appointed State Representative Janelle Branchin, another conspiracy theory nut, to be in charge of the Elections Committee in the State Assembly. And she turned around and, and endorsed Voss's opponent and Voss has had a reputation in the past of being a little vindictive towards people who have just held committee hearings on issues that Voss didn't even want raised and ousting them from committees. And yet he's tolerated Janelle Branch and For just now. bashing him from this position as a committee chairman because Voss is too afraid to rile up the Trump vote against him. Well, he and was. if anything, the, this election proved that maybe he had a point. Maybe if he had (laughs) taken action against the the monsters that he had created, that he would have been thrown out of office. Yeah, see, I I just don't know. Okay, so I was talking to somebody this morning about this, and and they said, well, I think Robin Voss has uh, learned his lesson. I mean, last night he was asked by reporters, well, what are you going to do about, you know, Michael Gableman and his, you know, million-dollar investigation now? And Voss uh, declared that, you know, Gableman was an embarrassment to this state. Well, okay, that's the irony, of course, because it was Voss as we authorized and appointed and stood by Gableman, all this. But but I was told, I said, no, I think he's learned his lesson. I said, well, what does that mean? What lesson did he learn? I mean, he could have learned the lesson, don't ever cross Trump. But this person told me, no, he's learned the lesson. Um, they're going to they're gonna fire Gableman, if not today, then certainly very, very soon. And uh, I wouldn't count on uh, Janelle Branch and being the chairman of that committee. So the lesson being, you know, if you give these people, you know, an inch, they will just, you know, eat your face. We'll see whether, in fact, they learned that lesson. But I think that, you know, this is the cautionary tale for people who think that, oh, you know what, if we provide air cover to the big lie, it won't come back to bite us in the ass. And what happens is these things metastasize. So that, that, I mean, that really would have been an extraordinary moment if he would have lost. In fact, for much of the evening, it looked like he might lose. And that would have taken the party, you know, into complete, you know, full MAGA here. So let's talk about the governor's race, because now we have the, we have a marquee matchup between Tony Evers and Tim Michaels. And of course, uh, the Senate race, which I think even non-cheeseheads are are paying attention to uh, Ron Johnson versus Democrat Mandela Barnes. We are both in the Wow counties. I am in Washington County right now, and you are in Waukesha County, right? So lovely, sunny Waukesha County, crucial Waukesha County. It is a beautiful day here in southeastern Wisconsin. So give me your read of the this matchup between Evers and Tim Michaels, because and again, uh, for people on on the on the outside, every Republican that I know of a few months ago was feeling very, very jiggy about this election. Just the assumption here was that this was going to be a big Republican sweep. The way the state is gerrymandered, there's no question that the Republicans will control the legislature. And Tony Evers is perceived to be very weak and very vulnerable. Um, what is your what, what is your read now that they've gone with a Trumpified Tim Michaels as the nominee? Well, Evers has already come out and attacked Michaels for being the most extreme candidate for governor ever. Mm. Uh, I think that that's the way he's going to run. The interesting thing that for Evers is that he is going to run actually on the Republican legislature's accomplishments as far as keeping taxes down and things like that. 
And Evers has also interestingly taken a different tack on the abortion issue. He has actually said, you know, he would like to see Wisconsin's very restrictive uh, 1800s law uh, repealed, but he would be willing to live with what was passed under Governor Scott Walker, the, the ban on abortion after 20 weeks, the uh, ultrasound requirement, the 24-hour waiting period. So Evers has already staked out a moderate position on abortion, and I think he's going to just bash Tim Michaels on, on abortion with the no exceptions. And So where, where is Michaels on abortion? The last I checked, he was he was uh, courting the pro-life Wisconsin vote and trying to get the no exceptions. But OK, no exceptions, no exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. This would be pretty much like the Indiana law. I believe that is Michael's current position. And, you know, we'll see if that holds up because <laughs> he's likely to probably flip flop during the, the general. See, this is what's interesting to me. And again, I think the the fundamentals would favor the Republicans in an off-year election where they tend to do well. Clearly, the you know, the national environment has been very, very hostile to uh, the Democrats. Things may be shifting a little bit, but you do wonder whether or not Republicans um, all around the country are perhaps going to blow this by nominating candidates who are too extreme. I mean, Tim Michaels, I think, has three big, big question marks over his head. Number one, as I think I've said, I mean, I, I think it was obvious during the primary that he is a not ready for prime time candidate. I mean, he clearly uh, is not read up on the issue. So uh, there's a reason why they kept him away from reporters. There's a reason why he dodged uh, the debates. He was very ill prepared, I thought. Uh, so there's a vulnerability there. That's number one. Number two, uh, the fact that he's made it very clear that he has joined at the hip with Donald Trump. And that he will now um, have to support and endorse everything Donald Trump says or does. And so that's a wild card, right? And then number three is this question of, of abortion. I've been telling people that for me, that's the wild card. I just don't know how that's going to play. It would seem that there's a big potential that that will motivate uh, Wisconsin voters in Madison, in the Madison area and in Milwaukee to turn out in big numbers and might hurt the Republicans uh, in in the, these wow counties where you and I are right now, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington County. What do you think? Well, I think that there's going to be a definite appeal for the Democrats, so the suburban, normally Republican women in those wow counties that have been slowly drifting away from the Republican Party since the since the rise of Donald Trump. And I think that there's definitely going to be an appeal to them, just like Joe Biden made an appeal to the suburbs to try to just peel away enough of those votes to to uh, keep the Republican margins down there to to uh, give them enough votes to win. But, you know, as vulnerable as Michaels is, we got to talk about how vulnerable Evers is yeah. on the big issue. I mean, burning Kenosha is going to be played over and over again. And we're going to be talking about that issue both in the governor's race and in the Senate race of, of the protests down in Kenosha, setting fire to the downtown. And they're also going to be talking about the boarded up windows in Madison during the protest, statues being dragged to Lake Mendota, a state legislator getting beat up in the riots, all while Governor Evers was perceived to be doing nothing. And I think that that is going to make him vulnerable, and it's also going to affect the Mandela Barnes who's running for U.S. Senate. 
I want to underline what you're just saying here, because again, if people are not in the Wisconsin media market, this might not be on their radar screen, but burning Kenosha is really a huge issue here. And uh, the memories are still very, very, very fresh. And you know that Evers thinks it's a vulnerability because he's been running ads trying to say, no, 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 I really did send in the National Guard right away. I, I was not slow doing it, but there's a lot of issues around there. That, of course, then dovetails with rising crime in, in places like Milwaukee, which the Republicans are trying to pin on Evers. So in terms of the big issues, my sense is the Republicans, of course, are going to run on inflation, on the, what they perceive to be the bad economy, uh, on uh, law and order, uh, all of those issues in both of those those races. And so, yes, that is a vulnerability. And I think people need to understand that. So uh, you raise the other big um, race that, uh, that uh, people are going to be focusing on around the country. Uh, and I think I've made it clear that I have been skeptical about Mandela Barnes' ability to beat Ron Johnson. So I want to get your take on uh, the vulnerabilities of both Johnson and Mandela Barnes, because that is kind of interesting this year. And I, I don't know, James, it's, maybe I'm going too far here, but I was, I was thinking back to previous years where both the Democrats and Republicans thought that they'd put up pretty strong candidates. And this year, you have deeply flawed candidates for governor and deeply flawed candidates for Senate on the part of both of the political parties. Let's talk uh, Ron Johnson. I think objectively going into this year, he was the most vulnerable Republican incumbent. As long as Democrats did not nominate somebody outside of the Wisconsin political mainstream. Now, I got a lot of pushback on this, James. I have a lot of questions about Mandela Barnes, who is unapologetically uh, progressive, was the candidate endorsed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, has played footsie with the folks from the squad, uh, lots of ties to defund the police, the famous T-shirt of him holding, you know, picture of him holding up a T-shirt saying abolish ICE. Uh, so give me your read on how Mandela Barnes plays in a general election in 2022 in Wisconsin. Uh, Mandela Barnes is worse than all that, actually. Um, if I, I've been shaking my head since the beginning of the of the Democratic primaries where they they were sorting through their candidates, because Mandela Barnes is probably the was the worst of the four candidates that they could have run. Not only does he have the the extreme political positions, but he also has some personal baggage. This is a guy who didn't pay his property taxes on time, and then, which is a big issue in Wisconsin. Property taxes are always a sore issue. And when he was asked about it, he said, well, he was too busy running for lieutenant governor. Uh, this was a guy who had to be carted around by the state patrol because he didn't pay his parking tickets. I mean, he's yeah. not exactly what you call your your heavyweight candidate. And he so, wasn't tested on this stuff in the primary because the no, Democrats... he wasn't tested at four all. years ago when he ran for lieutenant governor. He was an accident back then because nobody else ran for lieutenant governor, so he got the job. And now four years later, his opponents decided that they weren't going to attack him at all, even though he was definitely a target-rich environment. And uh, they all dropped out of the race rather than go negative on him. And here he is. He's the nominee. And this is a guy who chaired an environmental task force that recommended raising the gas tax just so people would use less gasoline. You can imagine how well that's going to play in Wisconsin or 
supports the Green New Deal, which dairy farmers are going to hold against them because the Green New Deal they see as a threat. I mean, this is a. I mean, he's not exactly uh, a candidate that's going to appeal to any voters outside of Milwaukee and Madison. And his rhetoric around uh, burning Kenosha uh, will be used against him as well. Now, for people who think that we're being excessively negative, my point is, look, uh, there are going to be tens of millions of dollars spent on this race of oppo research, and that is about to drop big time. So if, if you're upset that you're hearing about this on the podcast, Wisconsin voters are going to be hearing about this every time they turn on television or the radio. Why do you think, this is not a rhetorical question, why do you think Democrats decided to basically fold all their cards and go all in with Barnes? There were other candidates in the race. Uh, Alex Lazary was well-funded. Uh, Sarah Godlewski is the sitting state treasurer. Uh, there were other candidates that that had a chance to carve out a less controversial lane. I was constantly being inundated with text messages and emails from other Democrats saying, we are really worried about this. We think we have real questions about Mandela Barnes, his electability and everything. And and yet when it came right down to it, they decided that, okay, we, we give up. We're going to go with this. Why did they do that? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, the base of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is is a little more to the left than uh, the base of the Democratic Party in other states. Uh, it did support Bernie Sanders, for example, over Hillary Clinton. Big. Yeah. So, so I mean, you do have that that problem right there that the electorate on the Democratic side, it, it, when it comes to their primaries, uh, they tend to run to the left, but. Uh, there's also a belief fueling the Democrats that if they just gin up their base enough and if they turn out more votes in in uh, Milwaukee and Madison, if they just keep cranking up that machine, that they'll overcome any advantage that that the Republicans may have elsewhere, which I think is a huge mistake. They're not understanding the environment that they're in. They're going to need every single disaffected Republican voter that they can get. And Mandela Barnes is not the candidate that's going to attract them. They're going to have to hope that there's enough anti-Ron Johnson sentiment out there that either Republicans stay home, which I don't think is going to happen, or Republicans are turned off by the clown show that Ron Johnson is that they'll still vote for Mandela, but they'll be holding their nose doing it. My wife, for example, would be the perfect swing voter. She voted for Feingold in two elections she never voted for a Republican until George W. Bush it comes from a long line of Democrats, suburban, educated woman, professional. And yet her first reaction to Mandela Barnes is he's a moron. That was her exact oh, words. Okay. <laughs> so I can't imagine that Democrats really think that he's going to appeal to the to the center of the electorate. So to your point about the disaffected Republicans and the importance in Wisconsin, what people need to understand about Wisconsin politics is that you know, a lot of these big races have been decided by 20,000 votes. It is a knife's edge. Trump won Wisconsin by about 20,000 votes in 2016. He lost Wisconsin by about 20,000 votes in 2020. Scott Walker was defeated in 2018 by Tony Evers by about 20,000 votes. So what what are those 20,000 votes when when Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in 2020? Uh, I thought one of the interesting statistical analyses showed that 
Trump had run considerably behind other Republican candidates. If you added up all of those, you, you correct me if I'm wrong about this. If you added up all of the other Republican votes for Congress here in Wisconsin, he would have won, right? If he would have gotten all those other Republican voters. So again, you know, cutting to the chase here, our elections are decided most recently by these disaffected voters. In 2016, for example, Trump barely won Wisconsin, but Ron Johnson won handily. If Johnson were to perform at Trump levels, he's vulnerable. But if all the Republicans go home, he's going to win. Okay, now you mentioned the only way that Mandela Barnes can be competitive or win is to capitalize on the anti-Johnson vote. Now, I was talking to a political consultant about this. He said, you know, the problem with Johnson is he has said so many reckless, stupid, uh, extreme things that it's hard to keep up with them. There are just there are just too many. But Johnson continues to double down. And I don't know whether you had the same reaction to this. The, the week that Barnes nailed down the nomination, you'd figure that the Johnson folks would be saying, OK, you know, we are in great shape. And what does Johnson do? He goes out. And he suggests that Social Security and Medicare be made discretionary spending items. Like, whoa, does anybody want to win this race? Or is there this campaign? Like, who can actually touch the third rail more aggressively? Yeah. So, I mean, Johnson has real vulnerabilities, and his poll numbers really have been in the tank for a while. Right. And you want to talk about a candidate that was trying to sound like Paul Ryan without understanding what Paul Ryan was talking about. That was, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was Ron Johnson last week. Yeah. Ron Johnson is, you know, you can go on Twitter and say, you know, what stupid crap did Ron Johnson say today? He is a gaffomatic machine and he doesn't see it as gaffes. And He's actually running radio ads trying to re say to conservatives, you know, are you really going to trust the liberal media? And he's got them, the ads directing you to the site where he tries to set the record straight, which just makes him look even worse. Because he, he just keeps doubling down on all these stupid things that he's been saying. And when we're talking about the stupid things we're saying, you know, it's everything from the people at the January 6th riot where we're merely tourists looking for the rope line to I mean, to his quack medicine recommendations to yeah. I mean you can just run down the list and after a point it, it it's it's very Trump like it becomes exhausting to the point where you don't uh, you just kind of look at it and it's go it's all one big blob yeah. of misinformation and so are you gonna are you going to vote for the blob of misinformation or are you going to vote for the guy? And, and you can cite very specific examples of things that he's done and said. So I've stopped trying to answer the question when reporters ask me, like, what happened to Ron Johnson? Is he the Ron Johnson that you knew back in 2010? And for a while, I had some theories about what broke Ron Johnson's brain, but now I've kind of just sort of given up on it. What do you think? An excessively optimistic view of what Johnson was like back in 2010, but something happened to him. The Ron Johnson of 2010 is not the same Ron Johnson who has been just peddling one bullshit crackpot idea after another now. I mean, do you have some insight into what broke Ron Johnson's brain? Well, in the 2016 campaign, he was left to fend for himself. Yeah. Uh, he was written off by the by the Republican Party as probably going to lose to uh, former Senator Russ Feingold. And, and Johnson managed to uh, pull the election out, like you said, by a larger margin than Trump won. 
Uh, and he ran so a smart campaign. That, yeah, I, I yeah. think that this, to a certain extent, it's I don't need to listen to anybody anymore because look how well I did when I when I only listened to myself and we won. Yeah, the other side good. of it is. Charlie, I mean, what's happened to Ron Johnson is reflects what has happened to the Republican Party in Wisconsin as a whole. It's, it's it's as if you're in Rosemary's Baby and you discover that all your neighbors are Satanists after all. (laughs) (laughs) Or the other example is Beneath the Planet of the Apes when they all rip off their faces to worship the atom bomb. That's the way it feels. I mean, these movies resonate with me. I think that we're seeing the real. Ron Johnson to a certain extent on all these issues that we didn't see in 2010, because think about it. None of these issues that Ron Johnson's talking about now were issues in 2010. The things that were important in 2010 were how are we going to get federal spending under control in 2016? We get Donald Trump who didn't give a damn about how we get federal spending under control. So (laughs) we're seeing the, the other side of Ron Johnson, you take away that one issue from him, and you're this seeing them you pursue got. these crackpot theories. All right. Well, that, th- this actually makes sense. That That is plausible. Also, the incentives have have changed in Republican politics as uh, listeners to this podcast you know, have heard over and over again. But, you know, another way to think about it is, you know, imagine if you are a Republican politician and you want to stay a Republican politician and you begin to realize that when you talk about reasonable common sense things, you basically get an electric shock, right? It's aversion therapy. People's eyes glaze over. They don't want to hear it. They're not interested. But when you say crazy conspiracy theory thing, when when you mouth the MAGA slogans, they treat you like a beloved rock star. So at a certain point, you know, this invasion of the body snatchers thing that you're describing to steal Jonah Goldberg's line once again, in part, it's, it's the number of people who whose heads are turned or were weak enough to begin with who really respond to the kind of celebrity they get for being reckless. That is what is rewarded. And right now, so Ron Johnson is, is a, you know, kind of a laughing stock and, you know, to much of the country, but when he comes, you know, back to the Eau Claire Republican party or hangs around in Florence County, they love him. They embrace him. These are his people, right? So, and he knows what he has to do to stay in with his people. They will protect him. They have his back. And so you see how these figures are drawn into these strange little corners of the swamp or, you know, sucked into one rabbit hole after another because they get no reward for resisting it. And they get lots of rewards and hugs and kisses for saying things that you and I think are absolutely insane. Well, and they to take it a step further, Ron Johnson now gets to go on the local talk shows and he gets to talk to these talk show hosts that are always pushing the envelope more trying to give mm. give their audience the the straight heroin rather than the the old pot brownies that they used to get and so ron johnson goes on these shows and he just feeds into that he becomes the pusher for uh, for the straight heroin by the way i love this analogy i think this analogy of like the drug dealers needing to constantly up the dosage and up the intensity is crucial for understanding a lot of our politics. And and you can see that it's like, okay, we've got people outraged about this or indignant about this, or we've got them paranoid about this, but you know, you know, is somebody peddling something stronger, you know, is, is somebody horning in on my territory? So, you know, the, the, the pot brownie of 2010 
just doesn't cut it anymore. You have to be peddling the straight blue meth if you want to appeal to, say, the Vicki McKenna um, radio audience. She's a talk show host in, in Madison who basically, if you notice this, that when Ron Johnson says something really crazy, just like, what the hell is he thinking about? I would say 90% of the time, it's because he appeared on Vicki McKenna's show doing exactly what you just described. It's like, how do you pander to that audience? They keep pushing and he keeps he keeps going along with it. Yeah, exactly. And in, you go to these Republican events and they don't want to hear, well, you know, we tried to do this and we're working on a compromise with the president on that. They don't want to hear that. They, they want to hear how you're going to fight the socialists and keep the border sealed, even if you have to keep the border sealed with Illinois to do it. It's just, what are you going to do to fight Antifa? Yeah. Um, What are you going to do? Look, people shouldn't misunderstand when we're talking about some of the Wisconsin politics. I mean, you know, all of these guys have gone right. So for example, you know, please do not misinterpret what I'm saying about say Rebecca Clayfish, who the establishment candidate who went down to defeat. I mean, she she tried to play the MAGA card. She actually came into my suburb in Mequon, Wisconsin, and very actively supported a recall of the school board over allegations. They were teaching critical race theory. I mean, she was in that world. But see, that's the kind of thing. Rather than sit around and talk about, here's my policy initiatives, my ideas for solving these problems, this is now what they are demanding. They're demanding critical race theory. They're demanding more stuff about burning Kenosha or Antifa or what will trigger the libs, all of this stuff. And that's not confined to Wisconsin, and it's certainly not confined even to Ron Johnson. No, and to give you an idea of just how far the Republican Party of Wisconsin has gone, we had a, a, a primary for state attorney general, and the, and the person who lost, barely lost, Adam Jarko, a former state representative, Jarko actually believed that the state attorney general could enforce his vision of what should be taught in the classroom under current law. Not even calling for a new law like they have down in Florida. He thought that the state attorney general could tell teachers what they could teach in their classroom. I mean, that's the kind, and he almost won, Charlie. It's actually amazing he didn't win. Yeah, it's, it is, it is, it is amazing. Well, it's going to be another uh, close race. Um, my prediction, if anybody was putting a gun to my head, would be that um, Wisconsin will be Wisconsin in November, and that uh, despite whatever is happening nationally, that, that these races will probably be decided by about, I don't know, I'm going to go out on a limb here, about 20,000 votes. What do you think? I think we're going to be having a recount at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, it can't get any worse than this. No. Okay. Here's my worst case scenario. And then you one up me on all of this. <laughs> oh, it will, we'll have recounts at Christmas and then, you know, stop the steel rallies in the state Capitol. <laughs> this is our future, even here in Wisconsin. James Wigerson, thank you so much. James Wigerson's new newsletter is Life Under Construction, former editor of Right Wisconsin, columnist for, you were a long-time columnist for the Waukesha Freeman, right? So, I mean, if people yeah, want to know, years. Waukesha, crucial Waukesha politics, James Wigerson is the go-to guy. So thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow do this all over again.